0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: We are on page 144, middle of letter number 26, oh. and one of the questions he asked the Zohar writes, You have the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And uh, the Torah scholars receive their sustenance from the tree of life. And the Amiaret, the uh, earthy ones, the simple folk receive their life from the tree of knowledge. And as long as the... The uh, Torah scholars or compared to Shabbat are dependent on their livelihood, the sustenance, they receive their sustenance from the weekday, from the Amaya Aras, from the simple folk, and therefore, they have to study uh, the Talmud, versus Mashiach will come and then we'll receive our sustenance from the tree of life, then our they will, uh, uh, engagement will be exclusively the study of Kabbalah, the tree of life. And the question he asked, well, many Torah scholars who were, even in the times of the Talmud, were independently wealthy and they were not dependent on the, on the simple folk and the average person. So why, they were self-sufficient, so why do we find that uh, these rabbis then studied most of their time, was occupied in the studying of the re, uh, revealed part of the Torah, the Talmud, the Mishnah, Halacha. Rabbi Shimon the author of the Zohar himself, the overwhelming majority of his time he spent studying the uh, revealed part of the Torah. The question is why? He was not dependent on the uh, on the for nourishment for sustenance. And for thirteen years he lived in the cave, miraculously off the carob and the water the spring wellspring so, and for those 13 years most of his time he spends studying Talmud and Mishnah and Alaha versus the small amount of time quantity wise that he spent on the Zohar on the Kabbalah and the mysticism so he explains that's what he's going to explain now page 144 the uh, middle of the page and this is the meaning of the statement and this is the meaning of the statement in
0: Riaa Ya Nehemna, While the tree of good and evil dominates the world, these sages who are likened to the Sabbaths and festivals have nothing except what is given to them by those who are called unsanctified ones. This means that at the time of the exile of the Shekinah, which grants life force to the Kitsonim, that belong in the realm of Noga, from which the mixed multitude derive their life force and from whose distilled essence the Torah scholars are nourished during the exit. At this time, the main spiritual task of man and the main purpose of being engaged in Torah and the commandments is to disencumber and elevate the sparks, as is known from the teachings of Rabbi Isaac Lurie of blessed memory. For this reason, study chiefly involves deliberation and argumentation on the laws of Isser and Heter, and impurity and purity, in order to disencumber the committed and the pure From the forbidden and the impure by means of a a deliberation and argumentation on the law with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, with all the three intellective faculties of the soul, they clarify the law.
1: He means to say that this era, the era that we're in today, the era of exile, is a time when the world receives its nourishment and its sustenance from. Not God forbid that the Torah is from the Tree of uh, Knowledge. God forbid the Torah is Eitz Chaim, every word, every letter in the Torah is divine and pure, and 100% divine. And it contains the infinite, it's the world is under the uh, influence of the Tree of Knowledge. The world is in a confused state where good and evil are mixed together and and there's confusion and it all begins with the lack of clarity it all starts with the confusion of ideas. The world is confused. Good and evil is confused and mixed. and You don't know where good begins and evil starts or vice versa. Everything is so confused and clouded. Nothing is simple. Nothing is clear. Nothing is black and white. Good is not 100% good. Too much of a good thing can kill you. Too much sweetness can kill you. Eat great food, but eat too much of it will kill you poison it's not necessarily a bad thing you have medicines that you make from uh, from poison you have a person who's good and kind but uh, there's an ego involved as well he'll do a kindness but he wants uh, recognition he wants uh, so there's ego involved a person who appears to be kind and inside is not kind you know the outside is not like the inside and the inside is not like the outside and nothing is black and white nothing is uh, simple nothing is 100% So there's a lot of confusion, and it all begins with the confusion of ideas. So the the main service, the main purpose of studying Torah is really to clarify, to sift through and to clarify the good from the evil, what we should draw near, kosher. We can elevate, we can embrace, it could be elevated, what we have to distance, not kosher. Guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, pure, impure, all these judgments we have to make, the very clear, decisive judgments we have to make, which all comes from clarity of vision. You have to see things very clearly in order to be able to make a judgment call. To be able to judge, really, you have to have a very profound insight. And that's what it's going to say now, that Torah... It's so powerful. Torah comes from Chachma. And all clarifications come from Chachma. Chachma is the beginning of consciousness. Chachma is the creative idea. Chachma is vision, to see. You have to have such clarity of vision to be able to distinguish. Because it could be smart, very smart people. But they can't distinguish. They have no ability to Distinguish. They fall for all, how many so-called brilliant people fell for communism and other ideas that sounded nice on the surface. In real life, completely failed and collapsed and just doesn't work. It sounds beautiful on paper and gets you all excited, but, but if you had the clarity of vision, you would be able to see the flaw. Unfortunately, we all learn our lessons. You know, life is very real. You can learn your lesson in the uh, school of hard knocks. You know, you bang your head against the wall. You're going to learn your lesson. We all learn the lessons that we need to learn in life. But unfortunately, for most of us, we have to learn the lesson by getting knocked around and and uh, doing all the wrong things and doing it again and again and again and being knocked in the head again and again and again till finally something something. Uh, something clicks, that, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong, <laughs> maybe I should try something else. Um, but, but uh, so, in real life, it doesn't work. And only afterwards, you look back. Today, communism is a joke. Only today, you can look back, and you can dissect, and say, wait a minute, okay, so what was the flaw? In the 19th and 20th century, this was the rage, this was, this was the... Uh, all the intellectuals were excited about it and, and anyone who dared question it was killed. I mean, in Russia, you were killed if you dared question it. How dare... It's two plus two is five. You don't see it. I mean, it's so obvious. How dare you question Say two plus two is four? The emperor has no clothes. Today that it's the joke that it is, and it's completely discredited, and it's failed in every market that it's been tried it's completely failed. Now you start dissecting and realize the flaw and Marx and Engel, the whole flaw was completely flawed, totally flawed, beginning, middle, and end. it never made sense in the first place. But people were so dazzled by the idea and the concept and the You know, the conception, you know, all the brilliant, uh, we call them savant, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be harsh, but that's what they are, savant idiots. But all these brilliant people that come up with these ideologies that, that, oh, on paper, everyone was excited. (laughs) Oslo, two-state solution, peace, (coughs) brilliant concept, ideas. The intellectuals were engaging each other with these ideas and celebrating each other with these ideas, serenading each other. And in real life, thousands of Jews dead, tens of thousands injured, hundreds of thousands orphaned, millions hijacked, threatened by a nuclear weapon, 100, over a hundred thousand missiles. Hamas town, which is right at the, the greatest breeding ground of terrorism in Israel's border now you look back to 20 years later and you say, oh, something was wrong with this concept. <laughs> you have to you start dissecting it. Obviously, the whole concept was flawed from beginning, middle to end. But the problem is when you don't have a vision. And visionaries are not popular. Most visionaries in history were burnt at the stake because they went against the flow. Starting with Abraham. Look at Abraham, the visionary. He was thrown into the fire. He was, he was, they tried to murder him tried to burn him alive because of his vision of monotheism. And now monotheism has dominated the world. You know, the most popular concept in the world. The Bible is the world's bestseller. But it didn't start that way. It started with Abraham who was one Jew against the whole world. It's called avram Ivri, One Jew who stood up against the whole world. It was completely in- politically incorrect. He smashed all the idols His father ran the Bloomingdale's of idolatry, single-handedly smashed the idols, was thrown into prison, was thrown into the furnace, challenged everything, the politically correct assumptions of his day. But this is a visionary, you know, real visionaries. If you see that 2 plus 2 is 4, even if the whole world says that 2 plus 2 is 5, that's why they always complained against the Jews. You're 0.1%, 0.2% of the world population. How do you stand up to the whole world when 99.8% of the world is against you? Where do you have the chutzpah and the courage and the guts to go against Christianity, against Islam, against against the whole world? Against the whole UN? The only thing the UN agrees on is to be anti-Israel. Where does a tiny people, there are hardly any Jews in this world, where does it have the courage and the guts to stand up to the whole world? Aristotle is laughing. Plato is laughing at you. The whole civilized world is laughing. You know, in Rome, they made these to ridicule the Jewish people. A whole nation keeps Shabbat, a whole nation takes a day off from work. What what, what a, it's pure madness. What kind of, what, what kind of comes it? So, where, where do we get the courage to stand up to the whole world? The Torah says you have to follow the majority. We're a minority of a minority of a minority. We're 0.2% of the world population. And the answer is, if I see that 2 plus 2 is 4, even if 99.9% say that 2 plus 2 is 5, you don't waver, yes, yeah, no, there's no question. You have the clarity, I see, I see the sun is shining. Ten Einsteins can stand and prove to me that right now the sun is not shining, I won't waver for a moment. That's vision, that's clarity. To be able to just come into this darkness this chaos this confusion that we call this world which is our world which is so much darkness so much confusion every aspect of life even in business every successful sharp smart business how many businesses are run that are so mediocre and so foolish and you wonder how they make money it's a miracle they're making any money because they're doing everything wrong they're not smart and not doing it right. They're just blinded by arrogance or ego. How many great companies that we grew up with and no, long, no longer exist? <laughs> Multi billion dollar, the biggest companies in the world no longer exist. Completely lost it because of their own short sightedness, arrogance. They read their own press releases. So everything is so confused, which all begins with confusion of the mind. You know where idolatry started from? Maimonides, who's who's in his magnum opus, which is a book of halacha, gives us a whole history of, of idolatry, which is uncharacteristic. Maimonides tells us do's and don'ts, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated. Why does Maimonides give us a whole history of idolatry? Because Maimonides is explaining to us that idolatry primarily is an intellectual problem. It's crooked thinking. It's not just a lack of faith. Idolatry begins with crooked thinking. And crooked thinking leads you down to literally to idolatry. And crooked thinking has been around from the beginning of time and nothing has changed. (laughs) There's one Abraham and there's so much crooked thinking. And that's what the Torah does. The Torah gives us clarity. The Torah gives us vision. The Torah gives us depth. The Torah gives us emes to cut through all the baloney and all the confusion and all the... Oh, how did idolatry start in monotheism? Because he asked the question. People make a mistake. People think that Abraham invented monotheism. Simply not true. Adam was the first monotheist. God created the world. The whole world were monotheists. Adam and Chava, they were in the Garden of Eden. So how did the world, the question is not how did the world discover monotheism? The question is how did the world get to idolatry? How do you start from monotheism and you end up with idolatry? That's the real question. And he says, it didn't happen overnight. A person is, is traveling on a highway, you don't suddenly find yourself lost in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the forest surrounded by wolves and hyenas and lost. You make a crooked turn. One crooked turn. And you start going crooked and you go deeper and deeper, and before you know it, you're so far blundered, you're so lost, you completely, you can't even find your way back anymore. How did it start? He says it came, it all started with a crooked idea. Well-intentioned, but crooked. What was the idea? They thought, not out of denial of God, they believed in God, they knew there's a God, but they thought out of my, respect for God, I have to respect his ministers, just like when you respect the king, you have to respect those who he appointed to be his cabinet members, as ministers, to help him run his country, so out of respect for God, since God chose this, the moon and the sun, and we know how the energies of the sun and the moon affects life so profoundly, and the stars, and, and especially the angels, so out of respect, they are like God's ministers, we help run this world, so out of respect for God, God wants us to pay respects and acknowledge His ministers. Sounds good. Right? We'll get to a minute where they went wrong. But then came the next generation. next generation already took it a step further. That, that God revealed Himself to us and told us that I want you to pay respect to my ministers, which never happened. The next generation already took it a step further, that the stars and the moon and the sun revealed themselves to to, to the priest and told us that uh, that you should worship me. And they came up with images, the god of the sun and the god of the moon. And all these pagan images, you go amongst the Indians, all these pagan pagan images and idols and the, the, the god of the mountain and the god of the wind and the god of the water. And then, by that time, God became completely erased from human consciousness. They forgot how they got there. They, they, they couldn't even trace back where the crookedness began. And by the time Abraham was born, God was completely erased from human consciousness. He, he had a few pockets. He had a few handful. Shame. Yeshiva of shame. Noah and shame. And, and, but Aver, that's it. There was no... There was a handful of people who still believed. But they were outdated and they were a tiny pocket, no influence on the world around them. And Abraham was the, was, worshipped idols as a child. He didn't know any better. That's how he was, grew up. He was an idolater. And then he started thinking. At the age of three, he started thinking. He came out of the cave and he started thinking. Look at the sun. He bowed down to the sun. Then he realized the sun is not God. He bowed down to the moon. And he realized that the world, he saw the motions, constant motions. There must be an invisible force. that's the God that's moving everything. and creating everything. And he came to the realization, and he figured out how the world came to this crookedness. He he traced it back, he he understood how it all started. So where did they go wrong? Sounds great. The answer is, it's not a a good analogy. You can't compare God. A king genuinely delegates. He delegates his power. Because the king needs help to run the world, to run this country. So he actually delegates power, and therefore... Out of respect for the king, you have to respect his ministers. But God is not like that. God doesn't delegate. God is alone. Echad, yachid. God is exclusive. God runs this world. Not only God creates the world, God runs this world. The forces of nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, the angels, are nothing more than an axe in the hand of the builder. When was the last time you gave a plaque to the tractor that built the building? It's just a tool. That's all it is. It's the person moving the track. That's everything. So everything, everything that we see, God is doing everything. So for me to show any respect, to pray to an angel is idolatry. To pay respects to the sun and the moon is idolatry. But so what Maimonides is telling us is that idolatry is crooked thinking. It's not just a lack of faith. It's distorted thinking. Deism, it's distorted thinking. And that's what Christianity is today, and it's idolatry. Christianity says, yeah, they believe in God, but they're deists. They believe that God is up there. He left the world on its own devices. Once in a while, he intervenes to show that he's around, so he could perform miracles if he so chooses. But other than that, God is too busy to get involved in the nitty-gritty of this world. He lets the world run on its own devices. To a Jew, this is idolatry. God is alone. We don't believe in Trinity, we believe in unity, Hashem Echad. You know, Jews, Jews for, for, for J makes as much sense as uh, vegetarians for meat. <laughs> it's diametrically opposed, it's two opposites. Trinity and unity, I mean Judaism and Christianity is like a, a thousand, I mean it's, it's 180 degrees apart. It's because we believe that God not only creates the world, He runs this world. So, but it all started with crooked thinking, distorted thinking. And and ideas of consequence. Crooked thinking has consequence. It's not innocent. Oh, it's a bad idea. So what do you care? People are excited, enthusiastic, passionate. All that matters is that they're passionate. No. (laughs) If you're passionate about a very foolish idea, a crooked idea, a distorted idea, that has dangerous, dangerous consequence. It's a bubble. You create an artificial reality. You live in an artificial reality and may it sound good for the moment, but at the end of the day, you're going to bang your head against it and you're going to get hurt and people get hurt. It destroys your soul. It destroys ultimately destroys your soul, your body, everything. So ideas have consequences and Judaism, Torah, helps us. Not only gives us faith, but Torah is Chachma. Chachma is wisdom, is clarity, is vision, is being able to penetrating insight to see clearly, crystal clear, to see deeply, not to be taken in by something that sounds good but it's superficial and it's 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 covering up something lethal and a lethal idea, a dangerous idea that's lurking underneath that you don't notice. Torah penetrates to the core and separates, sifts. And makes a judgment call. Very clearly and very decisively. Halacha. Very clear and very decisive. Kosher. Not kosher. Truth. False. Guilty. Not guilty. Pure. Impure. Obligated. Not obligated. The ability to make that call comes from the deepest place. That all starts with Torah. So our main service today is to sift through and to clarify and to distinguish right from wrong and good from evil and truth from false and superficial from from depth and genuine from falsehood, that all starts with Torah. So when the rabbis spent all their life, their mental energy and their whole life engaged in the study of Torah, this was to clarify because we're under the influence of the tree of knowledge and we're under this confusing confusion and there's so much confusion and ideas are confused and people are confused and everything is mixed up and everything is so tangled up. It's a mess. It's chaos. How do you clarify and separate and sift through in the French? <coughs> it all begins with the rabbis studying Torah. When they study Torah and, and Torah engage their mind 24/7, and they broke their heads trying to understand the Torah. and Clarifying an idea in the Torah when something is not clear in the Talmud, and the Talmudic rabbis go back and forth and back and forth, questions and answers, trying to clarify a point by clarifying the idea in the Torah. This is how they brought clarity to the world, because Torah is the blueprint for reality. God creates the world with Torah. So when you have clarity in the Torah you dispel all the clouds and the confusion and the darkness and the sun shines. Now you have clarity. This brings clarity to the world. And this is the main service in the time of exile. And that's why he explains why the rabbis spent most of their time studying the revealed part of the Torah, the Talmud. Even Rabbi Shimon Be'echai, the author of the Zohar, spent most of his time studying the Mishnah and the Talmud, the legal part of the Torah, the body of the Torah. Because today... We have so much work, we had so much work just to bring clarity and and perception and understanding and, and in in this in this darkness. And that comes by studying the the revealed part of the Torah.
2: Whereas is known the Torah derives from Chachmah. Hence the sparks of holiness hidden in the legal question can be extracted and elevated only to Chachma. Specifically the supernal Chachma of Oxlot, which is vested in Malkuth of Oxlot. This being the Kabbalistic principle of the Yarel Tovah. According to the Kabbalistic principle by which the father Chochma of Batzwat begat the daughter, the Malchut of Batzwat, which in turn is vested in Malchut of Yetzirah. So
1: Malchus is rooted yeah, yeah. in the higher. The end is rooted in the beginning. Yeah. Just like vision, you see something physical. Here you can only hear something spiritual. I can hear sound waves. So it's, it's limited. With my hearing, I could only hear something that's spiritual. But the vision is much deeper. Vision reaches much further. With vision, I can even see something physical and tangible and see it all. So with Chachma, Chachma is very far-reaching. With Chachma, I reach Malchut and I can apply it to the practical, to the day-to-day to to bring clarity in this world. And And that's the root of the Mishnah, which the Mishnah is the source of halacha, which is the Mishnah tells us kosher, not kosher, makes all these judgments. Do I embrace or do I reject? Does it have the ability to be elevated or must I reject it? But so Mishnah brings all that clarity and all those decisions, those judgment calls and those decisive decisions. How to deal in real life? How do I approach real life situations? So that all's rooted in Chachma.
2: This accords with the Kabbalistic principle of the Mishnah Yot and the thought that are vested in the Kalipa Noga, which corresponds to the world of Yetzirah, where there begins the knowledge of good and evil, which is inherent in Noga, for the Kulipit Noga is, in the world of Yetzirah is equally good and evil. A variant reading and the Vodaisa that are vested in the Kulipit Noga, which corresponds to the world of Asiya, from where there begins the evil of Noga, for the Kulipit Noga of Asiya is mostly evil and minimally good. The above is known from the teachings of the Aruzah the of
1: Now he's going to say something wondrous that we find that all Torah decisions could only be made in this world. Only by the rabbis living in this world, in the physical world. Torah is not in heaven. Torah cannot be decided in heaven. Right. The disembodied souls in heaven or in the Garden of Eden with all their tremendous insights and revelations and spirituality and depth and intensity and higher levels of consciousness, they simply do not have the power to render a halachic verdict. The only <laughs> ones who have the power to render a halachic verdict is only the soul that's vested in the body who lives and operates in this arena, in this physical physical world. Famous story in the Talmud, very dramatic story in Baba Metzia. There was an argument between Yisguna Kodir, Abel and um, Rabbi Lezer and his colleagues, Rabbi Lezer Hagodl, the great Rabbi, Lezer, who was like the greatest Rabbi, there was an argument regarding a certain uh, a certain oven whether it's impure, receives impurity, cannot receive impurity. And um, Rabbi Lezer held one opinion, and all his colleagues disagreed with him. And the law states that whenever there's a dispute the lone opinion is cancelled by the majority opinion. The lone opinion has to submit to the majority opinion. The majority votes against you. At the end of the day it's really a unanimous opinion because he has to humble himself and accept. The Torah says you have to follow the majority opinion. Abelezer refused to follow. The of he believed that he was right and he was, greater, he was greater than all of them he was and his beliefs were rooted very deeply rooted and uh, he says I'm sorry I, can't, I think you're wrong and I can't accept it he said if the, if the law is like me the, the, there was a stream outside the synagogue he said, that stream should flow, instead of flowing downward, should flow upwards. And the stream started flowing upwards. The rabbi said, it's very impressive. We know you're a miracle worker and you're very holy, but it doesn't change the reality. To us, your opinion makes no sense and we're not going to follow your opinion. He says, if I am right, Rabbi says, this tree that's right outside the synagogue, let it be uprooted. And they saw it flying up <laughs> He says, very nice, but it doesn't change our opinion. You haven't convinced us that we're wrong. It's very nice. We're very impressed with your holiness and your mysticism, but it doesn't change our understanding of this halacha. Torah has to be understood, and it makes no sense though. He says, if I am right, let the walls of the synagogue <laughs> collapse in you. <laughs> and the walls of the synagogue started collapsing. Rabbi Shua got up and started yelling at the walls, don't mix into a fight that has nothing to do with you. It's between us and the rabbi. So the walls, out of respect, never came back to their original place, Remain. maybe some synagogues are like that, you know, they're never, they're never a little broken because of the fights in there. But then he said, if I am right, let a heavenly voice, let the heaven affirm that I am right. And the heavenly voice said, the law is like revelation. Rabbi Shua got up, and he said, with all due respect, Hashem, Torah Torah is not in heaven. Torah was given to us from heaven at Mount Sinai. And from that point on, Torah was given to us. And we are the only ones who can decide what Allah is. It has to make sense in our human mind. We have to learn, we have to understand, and we have to be totally honest and be egoless and genuine about it and trying to understand the divine mind but ultimately a rabbi cannot make a halachic verdict unless it makes sense to him a genuine rabbi can't just repeat things he's not a rabbi, can't make a halachic verdict give a halachic verdict all the rabbis that were accepted by the Jewish people the great rabbis throughout the generation that were accepted by the entire Jewish people they learned it thoroughly they were God fearing first and foremost because they were very anxious to make sure they're getting it right. Because when you come to a rabbi, with all due respect, I couldn't care less what the rabbi thinks. I mean, even if it was Moses himself, with all due respect, I'm sure it would be very interesting to hear Moses' opinion. But honestly, we couldn't care less what Moses' opinion is. What we care is what's God's opinion. The rabbi and Moses were trained to tell us, to, to decipher, to decode what the Torah is telling us. We believe that the Torah is the blueprint for life. Torah is the answer to every question that will come up. Right, wrong, the right approach. But not everyone can see the answer in the Torah. We come to a rabbi who had the training and was God-fearing. And he approaches it with tremendous trepidation because he's representing God. He's not coming to give his own personal opinion, his own take on the matter his own political slant, he's coming to tell me what does the Torah say about this situation. Do I go right? Do I go left? Right or wrong? Yes or no? I need a clear, decisive answer. What is God telling me at this moment? In time, in my position, here and now, today, in this situation. Even if the rabbi learned it and knows it, he goes back. And he doesn't sleep that night and he busts his head, and he prays, and he asks, Hashem, please give me guidance. God forbid I shouldn't misrepresent you. And this rabbi is a truly God-fearing person who being a rabbi is not a career for him. It's a divine calling, and he's genuine, authentic, and, and he's very learned, obviously. And he tries to the utmost of the human ability, then Hashem will help him. Hashem will guide him. He will have God's help and guidance. There's a famous story, the Neidu be Yehuda, Rabbi Hezkel Landau, the famous rabbis, the greatest rabbis in Eastern Europe, at the times of the Baal Shem Tov. His wife was actually a relative of the Baal Shem Tov. So he was uh, auditioning to be the rabbi in Prague, one of the youngest rabbis ever to become a rabbi of this illustrious Jewish community. And they put him through the ringer. He, you know, To be a rabbi, you have to, they questioned him, every part of the Torah and the Talmud, because it was a city filled with rabbis and scholars and geniuses in their own right, and they, you know, to become their rabbi, you had to be the rabbi of rabbis. And they asked him many questions, and all the questions he answered correctly, except one question they asked him, and he didn't answer right. And they called him and He didn't get this right. He says, you know what? I bet you, he says, that this question that you asked me is not a practical question. It's a theoretical question. And he was right. They made up a question just to test his sharpness. And he explained to them. He says, when a rabbi gives a verdict, I think the rabbi, the rabbi is human, he's fallible. How could the rabbi represent God, represent his Torah? But if he does the best that he can, God helps him. Of course he's human and fallible, but if he's God-fearing and, and he's genuine and he's sincere and he really tries his hardest and tries to, to be accurate and correct and find the truth, unbiased, unprejudiced, doesn't follow his own prejudice bias, really wants to know what does God say about the situation and follows the way how you're supposed to decode the answer in the Torah, the 13 principles that the Torah is derived from, etc., then God will help but if it's not a practical question, it's a theoretical question, God is obligated to make a miracle for me that I should get it right. I'm human, I'm fallible. So, what, what else is in this? That I'm not perfect. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not, there's nothing new there. It was a, actually a story with the third Lubavitch Rebbe, the grandson of the Alta Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. You know, many of the questions in the olden days in the shtetl, the most practical question was if he slaughtered an animal. You know, to slaughter an animal—you know how expensive an animal was—it was a year's salary. So you slaughter the animal, and there was a question: whether the animal was kosher or not. You check the lungs—not simple. Is it kosher? Is it not kosher? Is the animal defective? It's not healthy. And the rabbis would wrestle because, you know, to say that an animal is not kosher—it was like tishabah. It would be—it would be devastating for the person. You know, this is once a year he's shechting this animal and you're telling him it's not kosher. It's a disaster. Anyway, so this was in the city of Lubavitch and the Rebbe's house, the Rebbe's wife, slaughtered the animal and there was a question and she brought it to the rabbi, the town rabbi in Lubavitch and she asked him, Rabbi, is it kosher? And the rabbi said, no, it's not kosher. Sorry, not kosher. When the Rebbe, her husband, the Rebbe heard this, the Rebbe was... (laughs) the Torah genius of his generation. He looked at it. He says, um, with all due respect, I think it's kosher. Explain to me. On what basis are you disqualifying this animal? And the Rebbe starts overwhelming. The Rebbe is surrounded by all his sons. They were all great Torah scholars. And he's overwhelming this little town rabbi, this little city of Labavish, a little shtetl, Overwhelming him, it's like Einstein is having a debate with, uh, with uh, um, you know, a high school teacher of physics. You know, I mean, he's arguing with a great Rebbe, and and he's arguing that he thinks the animal is kosher. What basis does the rabbi have? Like, anyway, the rabbi got very agitated. The rabbi bangs on the table. He says, "I'm the Rabbi in this town, and I don't care who you are and how great you are. I'm telling you." It's not kosher. And he storms out of the house. <laughs> when he left, the Rebbe turns to his sons and he says, He's right. And he took out a Talmudic foliage and he showed a toysus, one of the restrainers, the, the commentaries, who actually said exactly what the Rabbi said. Now how the Rabbi zeroed in on this opinion where the Rebbe missed it, because he, had, he was a rabbi. And he was a God-fearing rabbi. And he was a genuine rabbi. And God helped him. It was a practical question. And God forbid, he's representing Hashem. So he's going to help him to make sure, guide him, that he's going to find the correct answer. So, the Torah was given to human beings, to us. The Torah is no longer in heaven. The question is why? Why could we render a verdict, a halachic verdict, that in heaven they cannot render. They come from the Garden of Eden to listen to the Torah that we learn. The souls in the Garden of Eden come to this world to hear how we study Torah, how we understand Torah. We nourish them, we sustain them. Which is, which is wondrous. It makes, they come from the heavens, come to our world, our dark world, coarse, crass world us finite, limited human beings, they come to hear the Torah that we're learning, how we understand the Torah. How does that work? Why is that? And the answer is that there's something very special in this world that's even superior to what they have up there. We say in the davening, in the Shabbat morning davening, we say right after the baruchu in the shabbat morning prayer on page 204 there's nothing that compared to you the angel and there's nothing besides you there's nothing but you and who is compared to you it sounds like poetic right just a poetic repetition of the same idea he spells it out. It's not poetic at all. He's talking about four different things. <speaking in Hebrew> and this world, is nothing that compares to you. <speaking in Hebrew> and there's nothing bes- our, besides our, your, our king, and <speaking in Hebrew> the world to come, in the Garden of Eden, in heaven. <speaking> in <Hebrew> there's, uh, there's nothing besides you. There, there's nothing but you, our Redeemer in the coming of Mashiach. And there's nothing that compares to you in the time of resurrection. It's not just a repetition, a poetic repetition. We're talking about four different levels. And very quickly and very simply. "E means you can't compare. You know, Could you compare a drop of the ocean to the ocean? What's a drop in the ocean in comparison to the ocean? What's a candle in comparison to the sun? Nothing. <laughs> Could you hold a candle to the sun? You have, a, you have a dollar, and Bill Gates has $80 billion. Could you compare the two? One dollar to $80 billion. So So it's, it's like insignificant. But it's not inherently insignificant. After all, the ocean is made up of many drops. Bill Gates, $80 billion is made up of many dollars. It's not inherently insignificant. A candle on its own is very, very significant. If you're lost in a forest and it's pitch black, that little candle, oh, that candle is so precious. A drop of water? You're stuck in the Sahara Desert and there's no water around. That drop of water can save your life. I have one dollar bill. If I'm starving to death, I can buy a piece of bread and save my life. So you can't say it's inherently insignificant. It's only when you compare the two, one drop in comparison to the ocean, one dollar bill versus $80 billion, a candle versus the sun, the light of the sun, you say it's nothing. It's not inherently nothing. So that's the lowest level. That us, in comparison to God, God is so great, and God is so vast, and God is so complex, God is so infinite, that we're nothing. You can't even compare. It's like comparing a drop of the ocean to the ocean. That's very basic, very elementary. Then we go a little deep. When the soul, after 120 years, the soul reaches a much higher level. The soul realizes that in Zulash, there's nobody beside you. It's like the light of the sun in comparison the light of the sun the light of the sun is nothing without the sun energy is nothing without, without its source it can't exist for a moment without the source you can't disconnect you can't bottle light you can't bottle light and sell it I can bottle water and sell it but I can't bottle light and sell it because if it's disconnected if it's unplugged from its source it ceases to exist Energy only exists as long as it's connected to the source. It has no existence without its source. There's nothing besides you. Nothing could exist for a split second with, if it's not connected to Hashem. So therefore I'm completely nullified to my source. If I can't exist independently for one split second without my source, the light is completely nullified to the sun. It points to the sun. Everything it has is from the sun. It's a reflection of the sun. It's completely nullified to the sun. Light, because the light senses, without the sun, I'm nothing. My whole existence is only from the sun. There's nothing else. So this is a much deeper understanding. It's not only that we are finite and we are limited and God is infinite, so we're insignificant in comparison to God. We're completely dependent on God. We're like a light that's constantly connected to its source. So therefore the light is completely nullified and egoless before its source. That's a much deeper, deeper level. But then there's even a deeper level. And that's going to be revealed when Mashiach will come. And that level is Ephes. Ephes means there's nothing but you. The light of the sun, there is the sun, and there is the light. It's two separate things. But the light is completely dependent on its source. So there's the sun, and there's the light that's outside the sun then you realize there's a level where F is built of. there's nothing but you because let's not look at the sun the way the light sees the sun let's look at light the way the sun sees light how does the sun see light? it doesn't exist to the sun light doesn't exist what's light? what's light? light doesn't mean anything It's an absolute non-entity. It's a non-existence. Because whatever light has, the sun has, it comes from the sun. The light light inside the sun. The light in the sun, the sun can't even find the light that's in the sun. You can't give what you don't have. Obviously, if the sun gives off light, the sun has light. But within the sun, you can't even find the light. Because it means nothing. It's an absolute non-being, non-existence. It doesn't add anything to the sun. It's completely insignificant to the sun. It's as, if it do- it's as if it doesn't exist. It means absolutely nothing. It doesn't change anything. Doesn't add anything. It doesn't affect the sun. It, it means absolutely nothing to the sun. That's why it makes no difference to the sun if there is light, there is no light. It's a cloudy day. It shines. It doesn't shine. It's day and night. it means nothing to the sun. It doesn't mean anything. It's a completely non-entity. That's God's perspective. From God's perspective, there's nothing but God. The whole world and all the energy with which God creates the world, the divine energy, to Hashem, it's a non-entity. It's it's as if it doesn't exist. It's not an illusion. Of course, God creates it, so it exists. But it's as if it doesn't exist. It it means absolutely nothing. It makes no difference. It doesn't affect God one way or the other. Ani Hashem lo shaniti. God is completely, remains unaffected by all of creation before He created, after He created, it makes no difference, nothing changed. The whole universe is a non-entity to God. It's as if it doesn't. It's like, it's like in the world of intellect, right? In the world of intellect, does a sense of touch exist? In the world of ideas, the sense of touch simply doesn't exist. You're going to say, oh, I grabbed, I, I grabbed an idea with my fingers today. Oh, it was such a good idea, so juicy. I was able to grab it. Or to say it was so so difficult, it was so deep, I couldn't grab it with my hands. It's a completely nonsensical statement. In the world of ideas, the world of touch doesn't exist. To someone like Einstein, people like us, we don't exist. I mean, he's, he's living in a different universe. There's no connection. There's no relationship. There's no connection. Infinity a million, a billion, a zillion. shows not one iota closer to infinity than one. There's no relationship between numbers, the world of numbers, and the world of infinity. There's absolutely nothing. In Ephes Biltecha, there's nothing besides you. That's the level of Mashiach. We're not going to discuss the fourth level. That's Yigeret HaKodesh Chaf. You can find it in the lessons in Tanya and <laughs> Tanya.com. The 20th letter of the Alter Evo to understand the fourth level of Chiyat HaMesim. And the letter that Al-Tarebi wrote right before he passed away, the most powerful, powerful letter he's ever written. Um, But the, but, so what he's saying here is that in order, in order to affect this world, in order to change this world, which is through Torah, Torah is the only way you can really change this world. God created the world, but the world is status quo. How do you affect change in this world? How do you bring light to the world? How do you clarify and sift and change the world? In order to change the world, you have to reach a level where the world simply doesn't exist. Where you're completely not affected by the world. So it's the level of Chachma. What's the level of Chachma? The level of Chachma is the realization that nothing exists besides God. It's not even that we're dependent on God. We're in existence, but we're totally dependent on God. No. That's spirituality. That's heaven. But chachmah is godly. Chachma is divine. It's the realization that there's nothing but God. Only when you have that clarity that there's no reality but God and the world from God's point of view simply doesn't exist, like from the sun's perspective, light simply doesn't exist. Then you have the ability to mold the world, to shape the world, to redefine the world, to bring clarity to the world, to bring light into the world, to penetrate the darkness and to reshape and change the world. So the only reason the Jew is able to do tikkun Olam is precisely because we're not part of the Olam. We come from, we're connected to the Torah, where people of the book are connected to the Torah where the world simply doesn't exist. And where is this level of Torah found? in this world because in order in order to be able to reach this darkness, in order to be able to reach this place, this world, to bring clarity to this world you have to reach the highest level that's how Hasidus explains ultimately when you say, why did the soul come down to this world? for the soul it's a plunge it's a descent, it's it's traumatic it's from the peak to the, to the abyss so we say the descent is in order to achieve an ascent so conventionally we understand that to mean that eventually by studying Torah and doing mitzvot eventually you have the, a potential to reach an elevation to reach a higher level than the soul was before it came down into this world but Hasidus says no the moment the soul comes down to this world it already has the aliyah. Because Hashem empowers the neshama. It says when the neshama comes down to this world the whole tanya starts out the beginning of the tanya. Hashem give, administers an oath. Hashem from the word Masbia, Hashem satiates the neshama. Hashem gives the neshama extraordinary strengths, in order to be able to deal with the with this world and the body and the confusion and the conflicts and the struggles. So immediately, the moment it's born, it's given a boost, it's given an elevation, it's given a, an intensity, a strength that the soul doesn't have in heaven. So the Torah that's given to us in this world, we're given the level of chachmah that's even greater than the level, the, sp- the spiritual level that's revealed to the souls in the Garden of Eden in heaven. We're given the level of chachma, that clarity that, that, we, there's, that there's no other reality but God. And therefore we have the power, only here in this world do we have the power to mold and to shape and to change the world. Change it from a dark, concealed place and transform it into something holy and wholesome and godly and good.
0: To heal, to heal also. To you
1: heal the body. Right. The world is sick and it needs a healing. Healing begins with a spiritual healing, which translates into material healing. And this all comes from Torah. That's that clarity, and that's that. that, that, that. So, so, that's what he says now.
3: Now, the intelligent will understand something far more remarkable namely, what happens in heaven above through the deliberation and elucidation of an adjudged ruling. Of the Gemara and of the earlier and later codifiers, which, before these deliberations, had been concealed. For by means of this clarification, one elevates this ruling from the clipot that were hiding and covering it in such a way that it was not known at all, or that its reasoning was not clearly understood. For the reason, underlying a particular al the rise mystically from the sphere of super supernatural from which sparks fell into the klippot as a result of the primordial breaking of the vessels. As to the sparks of the Chochmah which constitute the reasons, they are then in a state of exile because the klippot rule over them and hide the wisdom of the Torah from both the higher and lower beings, both from the created beings of the world, such as angels and souls, and from men situated here in the lowly world. This is why he states in Raya Mehemna, as quoted at the beginning of the present letter, that a problematic query emanates from the side of evil, since it creates difficulty in the comprehension of a Torah concept, it derives from the evil clip which conceal the Khochmah of the Torah. So
1: he's saying even if we know what the Halacha is, but but if we don't know the reasons behind it, if we don't understand we don't really truly understand the reasons behind it, so that's because of the concealment, because of lack of clarity, and because of questions, and it's misunderstood, and, you know, so that all comes from the hiding and the concealing, and the, uh, this, the uh, services to clarify that not only we should understand, know the halacha, but also understand the halacha, understand the reasoning, and have that clarity of understanding.
3: So the concealment comes from the evil side.
1: Correct, correct.
3: Now the celestial beings, that is the souls and angels in the higher walls, do not have the power of disencumber and elevate that which is in Kripatnoga, that is the sparks that are exiled there, as a result of the breaking of the vessels.
4: Only the terrestrial beings, the souls situated in this wall, can do this. For they are vested in a material body that is known as the height of the serpent, which derives from Kripatnoga. As explained above, when this concept appeared in Chapter 31 of Tanya, to the Zohar, the serpent refers to the three utterly impure Klippot, while the body that derives its vitality from kipat noga is called the hide.
1: So it's just the hide, it's the skin of the serpent. The serpent itself is irredeemable. That's the three absolute uh, evil, negative energies. The kipat noga, the surface, the skin, has the potential to be
4: elevated. These embodied souls weaken its strength, the strength of this klipa, by crushing the passions, thereby subjugating the sitra achra, so that all the workers of evil, the klipot, will be dispersed. Thus, only souls in this world are able to extract the holy sparks from the klipot and elevate them. For this reason, they alone are able to elevate the chokhmah of Torah, which the klipot obscure. This is why the celestial beings, the souls of the higher worlds come to hear innovative insights into the Torah from the terrestrial beings, from the souls here in this world, to hear the secrets of wisdom, which they innovate and reveal, and which until this time have been in bondage, in exile.
1: So it was, the concealment was even in heaven, they didn't have that clarity, so they are dependent on us, (coughs) we nourish and nurture them by us working through and breaking uh, our passions and and breaking and and dedicating ourselves to studying Torah and working it through and we innovate and reveal the reasons and the truths and the depth and the deeper insights and we bring clarity we don't only bring clarity to ourselves we bring clarity to the souls in heaven they come to listen to the innovations of the rabbis in this world Um, and then he says, fifteen. He yeah.
4: is able to reveal secrets of wisdom to reveal and to discover a new insight, whether it be in the laws or in the homiletics and the revealed or in the mystical planes of the Torah, according to the nature of his soul's root and its consequent affinity with each of the above categories of the Torah. Indeed, one is obliged to do so, to uncover hereto-concealed insights into the Torah and to reveal the secrets of wisdom, to perfect his soul by elevating all the sparks that have been allotted to it as is known.
1: So he says every Jew is obligated to study Torah and the main part of studying Torah is not just reviewing and reviewing that that you already know, but every day you have to study something new, but it's not just learning something new, new information, but you have to innovate. Everyone has to innovate. Everyone has to come up with, uh, because, Every soul is so unique and every soul is so different. And the way you process an idea, if you truly understand the idea, truly process the idea, that it really makes sense to you because you don't fulfill the mitzvah of studying Torah unless it makes sense to you. If you study the Talmud and you study that Rabbeinu Tam had a kasha, had a question, it's a very interesting historical fact then in the 13th century Rebbein a time had a question. It's, it's an it's interesting lesson in history, but that's not called studying Torah. Do you have a question? <laughs> Does the Talmud make sense to you? Does this halacha make sense to you? The mitzvah of studying Torah is you have to learn and study until it makes sense to you. And if you truly break your head and you truly understand it till it becomes so crystal clear to you, that's innovation not for the sake of innovation some people learn just to, to show off to, to innovate something and they're just wasting everyone's time and just uh, you know it's not worth the paper it's written on you know and don't you know someone once came to the Vilna Goen for to get an approbation to get on his book that he published and the Vilna Goyen is looking and he's looking and he says real chiddush real chiddush he was very impressed wow the guy likes my book real chiddush he says you know we take shmatas and turn it into paper <laughs> but to take paper and turn it back into shmatas <laughs> he says that, that's a chiddush why are you wasting my time why are you wasting your reader's time you and hacking in China just plopling writing foolish things that's not That's ego. Anyone that's motivated by ego to show that I'm clever and come up with something clever, don't waste your time. Don't waste anyone else's time. Real innovation comes from genuine, honest learning. When I really want to understand what does this truly mean? It has to make sense to me and and it has to process through my mind and I don't understand it. I'm repeating words. It's very nice words. I'm just repeating words. It's not something that I truly, truly get. It doesn't really click with me when something really clicks with you and you truly get it, the way you express it, that's innovation because you are unique. And the way you understand something and the way you process something and the way it clicks within you and the way you, the emphasis that you put and, the, and, and how you understood it and how you got to the way you understood it and the questions that you had and the clarifications, that's innovation. Not just for the sake of innovation. You know, that's, that's people mistaking mistake this very very badly. Innovation meaning because you have to study Torah. Your soul is incomplete until you study Torah. Every Jew is given a portion in the Torah. And every Jew inherits the whole entire Torah. Not only the revealed part of the Torah, the secrets of the Torah as well. So you have to learn it. And if you learn it properly, truly understand it, you can't help. That is innovation. Because your unique approach, and your unique understanding, and your richness, and your depth, and your, 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 your angle that you see it, and what you emphasize, this is an innovation that everyone else can benefit from. Because you're bringing something to the table. There never was a Jew like you, and never will be a Jew like you. No one ever understood the Torah the way you understood it. No one could understand the Torah the way you, with your unique personality, unique individuality, unique experience, unique background, unique way of seeing things, processing the world, what you're bringing to the table. She so says every Jew is obligated to study Torah. And the proof that you've truly studied Torah is that you innovate, that you come up with something, that you realize something, and something that really strikes you, and something that really gets to you, and something that really. Uh, so that, that, that's innovation.
0: Moreover, every Torah teaching, especially a Halakhic teaching, is a spark of the Shekinah, which is the word of Hashem. In the words of the Gemara, the phrase word of Hashem denotes the Halakha. This accords with the Kabbalistic principle regarding Malchut of Etzelud, which garbs the Kafma of Etzelud, both of which are vested in Malchut of Yitzhirah, and with the breaking of the vessels, they descended into Kleba Noga. The words of Torah in general, and particularly the halakhic word of Hashem, are thus exiled within the clipo that conceal them. Accordingly, a scholar who brings to light a teaching long hidden in the Torah, or who resolves a problematic query, and thereby clearly articulates a particular law, releases the pertinent spark of the Shekinah from the clipo. Thus, the Gemara teaches that the Holy One, blessed be He, says of whoever engages in the study of the Torah, I account it as if he had redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world. The Torah study redeems the sparks of the Shekhinah, the sparks of the word of Hashem from their exile within the tree
1: So if there's a part of the Torah that's not clear, that's a lot of questions and it's very confusing, that means that the Shekhinah is an exile. And by you studying through and working it through and really, really clarifying it, you're releasing and redeeming the Shekhinah and you're overcoming the Klippa, and um, so Hashem says, you redeem me, and by redeeming me, you also redeem the Jewish people, and ultimately, you redeem the world. And next week, we're going to learn how this is all the Torah study that we study today. But once Mashiach comes, and there's no longer any hiding, the Klippa, then the whole purpose of Torah studying implies something else entirely. Mm-hmm.
3: It's written that souls studied Torah in, in heaven. Yes. So why do they lose the ability that they had before they went to heaven to innovate it, etc. etc. Because they come here to listen to what we have to say. It sounds it comes across as if this, when they studied Torah in heaven, they lost the ability to do what they would be able to do when they were here before they passed on and they went to heaven.
1: The Torah study that they learn after they come to this world after 120 years, after they leave this world, is that they have new insights in all the Torah study that they studied in this world. All you have is the Torah that you come, that you learned in this world. But all the Torah that you accomplish and achieve in this world, you keep on advancing, you have uh, greater insights and greater insights and more spiritual insights, and uh, you advance every day in, 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 in learning and understanding that that you have already accomplished in this world. But so the breakthrough, right? the breakthroughs are only in this world.
3: But but soul that's going to higher levels than the breakthroughs that they achieve in this world. Why does it need to come here to listen to, to what no. we, to our breakthroughs?
1: The breakthroughs in up are a more spiritual understanding of that that you have already understood in this world. But the breakthrough itself is only in this world. That's what he's saying. In heaven, you don't have these breakthroughs. You don't have the ability to have these breakthroughs. In heaven, you have the, uh, heaven is spiritual. So the Torah there is spiritual. So you remove the garb and you understand the spiritual. You know, the Torah is like a mashal, like a parable. It's like the Russian doll. You keep on uh, something inside and then uh, something beyond that and something beyond that. So you understand it in a much more subtle way. But the breakthrough, the halacha, can only be decided in this world. Once you have the breakthrough and you're able to remove the clipper and you're able to clarify and make a judgment and say, render halacha, now to understand this, you can understand it deeper and deeper and deeper, more subtle, more spiritual. So as you become more spiritual, you understand it also more spiritual. Thousands and thousands of levels. But the breakthrough is only in this world.
3: Another way maybe of saying, can we say that are only relevant in this world In the world, in the next world, the breakthroughs that we achieve here are not relevant because it's more of a spiritual...
1: No, no, they are relevant because when something is not clear in this world, it affects also all the upper worlds. They don't have that clarity. But once you have that clarity and you make a decision which can only be made in this world, then to understand the halacha, I can understand it spiritually and more subtle and deeper but the only one who can tell me what the halacha is is only in this world, in heaven. With all their understanding, with all their spirituality, and all their advances, and all they do is study Torah, day, day, night. They cannot render a halachic decision. They don't have that power. They don't have the ability to make that breakthrough. It's only in this world, in the darkness, in the confusion, in in this chaos, in this coarseness and crassness with the physical body, we have the chachmah. We have the deepest level. In the yirida, we have the aliyah. We have the intensity and the strength of Torah. That's what he's saying it, which is wondrous. It's unbelievable. We have to realize, you know, we look at ourselves, we're, we're coarse and crass, and we're so lowly, and so down, and dark, and so confusing. And he says just the opposite. We have the deepest. We have the Chachmah. We have the essence of the Torah. And that's why we have the ability to create breakthroughs. And they all come from heaven to see how we understand and the breakthroughs that we're making in this world. Once you have that breakthrough, then you can take it from one level to the next level, understand that breakthrough, understand it deeper. and further. We can make a breakthrough but we don't appreciate the breakthrough that we've made. They appreciate the breakthrough that we're making. They're coming to learn and to hear our breakthroughs, and they go to town with it. How many, how many inventors are there? They don't even appreciate what they invented. They don't even realize what, they, what they've done. We learn in this world, we don't even realize what we've done. Before you learn this Tanya, before you learn letter numbers 26, you don't even realize the power and the strength that we have in this world. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, America is named after?
0: America Vespucci.
1: Mariego, right? Vespucci. Columbus discovered America and he died in jail. <laughs> and Mariego gets all the credit. The McDonald brothers died poor people. I think they sold it for a few thousand dollars, this multi-billion dollar company. They, they invented something, and they didn't, they didn't even appreciate what they invented. They didn't even realize what they invented. So we make all the breakthroughs, but we don't even appreciate we don't even realize what we're doing. After 120 years, wow, this is what I This is what it means. This is what... And it goes ad, ad infinitum. You know, every day they appreciate it more and go from one level to the higher level. But the breakthroughs are made in this world. Because we have the essence of the Torah. In the irida, we have the Aliyah. Right away. We have that empowerment. We have the essence of the Torah. But whether
4: is only spiritual breakthrough? Or it's innovation? Which kind of breakthrough
1: and the breakthrough? Are we able to clarify the halacha and able to say what's right and what's wrong and what we could embrace and what we have to reject and remove questions and remove difficulties and uh, and uh, these are the breakthroughs. These are the clarifications which affect the world. You know, Torah is the blueprint for life. So once you, if you have those breakthroughs within the Torah, it affects the whole world. The world becomes a clearer place, a better place. That's why the... the the rabbis are called Al Tikre al They are the architects. They create the world. They rebuild the world. They do the real Tikkun Olam. By studying Torah and, and, and busting their heads in Torah and really all that effort and sweat and toil in the Torah, they rebuild the world they create, they create a new reality in this world. That's the power of the Torah that we study in this world, the power of the Talmud and the Allah. That's why we spend so many hours. Yesterday was the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab, fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the founder of Tom Chitmim, Lubavitch. And in his yeshiva, two thirds of the day, the, the students, we studied Talmud and Allah in great depth. And one third of the day, we studied Chasidut, the mystical, the spiritual. But the majority of the day was spent, six days a week, was spent in the study of the revealed part of the Torah that's occupied and engaged most of our time. That's what he's explaining, because by studying Torah and by and the effort and toil in studying of Torah, not just studying superficially, but really, truly studying and clarifying and understanding till you reach a level that you can innovate. You can't innovate if you're studying superficial. It's only when you study in depth and you hit an obstacle, an obstacle course, and it doesn't make sense to you, because when you go, something, when you go into it very deeply, suddenly the superficial understanding falls apart, it doesn't make sense, it's not so clear, it's not simple, it's full of contradictions, and that forces you to truly clarify and get to the depth and truly understand it. And then, ah, now I understand it. That's innovation. So you really have to engage your mind and you really have to sweat and toil. And by doing that, you bring clarity into this world. You bring godliness into this world. And you redeem the Shekhinah. You redeem Hashem. And you bring the light into this world, and you rebuild this world to be continued. This class is part of the
0: Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.